0: to Body Talk, a high yield anatomy review for the USMLE Step 1. My name is Ali, I'm a third year medical student at SUNY Upstate in Syracuse.
1: And hey, my name Ned, I'm also a third year medical student at SUNY Upstate.
0: Today's episode we're going to talk about the renal system and there will be a heavy emphasis on the kidneys. So Step 1 is going to test you mostly on renal physiology, but knowing the important anatomy can get you a few easy points on the exam. Mm-hmm. So some kidney basics. So I think the kidneys are cute. They're little, they're bean-shaped, they do a lot in the body. Um, They're retroperitoneal organs, which is important to remember. And they regulate acid-base balance, electrolyte concentrations, fluid volumes, and urine excretion. So know that the right kidney sits slightly lower than the left, and this is because the right lobe of the liver displaces it downwards. Um, And the kidneys generally lie between T11 to L3, depending on if you're on that right or left side. So a clinical correlation here, uh, costovertebral angle tenderness. So the costovertebral angle, it's formed by the 12th rib and the spine. So here, what you do on physical exam, you essentially hit the person in the back at this level on both sides because that's where the kidneys are. And if they have pain in that area, you're going to start to suspect some sort of infection.
1: Like pyelonephritis.
0: Yes, pyelonephritis would be the, the key one that you're looking for there. So the kidney also is surrounded by a few things. You have the renal fat, um, perirenal fat around each kidney, and then you also have the renal fascia, which encloses the fat. Another clinical correlation, so this renal fascia that's surrounding the perirenal fat, it doesn't enclose the inferior aspect of the kidney where the ureters are. So this is why kidney infections can spread easily into the pelvis or vice versa. Infections from the pelvis can easily spread into the kidneys. So then, Ned, do you wanna just walk through some basic um, structure of the kidney?
1: Oh yes, I do. Um, all right, so we'll talk about the kind of outside of the kidney, you have your capsule, that's the outer layer. It's just a thin fibrous membrane, not that important for any sort of exam purposes. And then you have the cortex, and that's immediately below the capsule. Right, and this is where it's gonna to start to get into an important anatomy. This contains the glomeruli and part of the renal tubules. And then underneath the cortex, you're gonna have the medulla, and that's the innermost part of the kidney. That's going to contain the collecting ducts and the tubules, and the interparenchymal tissue is going to form the medullary pyramids underneath that. So the tips of the triangle of uh, these medullary pyramids are going to form the renal papillae, and that's where urine is going to enter the minor calyx. All right. The renal pap so renal papillary necrosis is an important topic to talk about as well. Um, the renal papillae can become necrotic and they slough off. Uh, and the reason why they this happens is uh, usually some sort of ischemic event. The blood flow there is not so great. Um, it's going to cause gross hematuria and proteinuria. And it can be caused by several different things. Like I mentioned, maybe ischemia, but it can also be sickle cell disease or trait, acute pyelonephritis, even medicines like analgesics, like NSAIDs, and diabetes. So I'll walk real through the specifics quickly as far as uh, kind of... Um, plasma flowing through the kidneys at this point. So the afferent renal artery is going to bring blood into the glomerulus. Blood and plasma that's not filtered is going to leave via the efferent renal artery. The plasma that is filtered from the blood is going to go into the Bowman's capsule and the glomerulus sits inside of this Bowman's capsule. From there, the plasma is going to flow into the proximal convoluted tubule, and this is the site of carbonic anhydrase inhibitors such as acetazolamide uh, for everybody that's studying for, you know, farm right now. And then it's going to go move into the descending loop of Henle. And this is the concentrating segment, so a lot of water comes out during, when it's going through the descending loop of Henle. And I remember that this was a pretty important topic. They like to ask these things about, like, on the step exam, like, you know, where's the most, like, concentrated segment, where's the most diluted segment. So just know that this is the concentrating segment, the descending loop of Henle. The ascending loop of Henle is next, and this is the diluting segment, and this is where sodium chloride is going to come out, and it's also the site of uh, loop diuretic action like furosemide. From there, it's going to move to the distal convoluted tubule, and this is the site of thiazide diuretic action like hydrochlorothiazide. And then finally, it's going to get to the collecting duct. And this is the site of mineral corticoid antagonists, like spironolactone, and it's also where ADH, antidiuretic hormone, is going to act to increase water reabsorption. From there, at that point, boom, you got yourself some urine.
0: So what Ned just walked you through is essentially the nephron. So that's the basic functional unit of the kidney. And just to reiterate, it's so important to know your physiology here, as well as the pharmacology tie-ins that Ned just walked you through. So urine is going to leave via the collecting ducts, go into the renal papillae, into the minor calyx. A couple minor calyces will form a major calyx, which becomes the renal pelvis. And then you get the ureteropelvic junction. So this is the site where the renal pelvis narrows to become the ureter. And then the ureters will travel down to the bladder where they empty the urine. So a clinical correlation here, uh, the narrowing at the ureter I can never say this word, right? Ureteropelvic junction is a common site for kidney stones to become trapped. So that's the most common area. So just keep that in mind. So the test also likes you to know the course that the ureters take um, as they travel in the body and the relationship to the other anatomical structures. So this becomes important. Um, I just finished my surgery clerkship and you get a lot of questions on this because you don't want to injure the ureters in a lot of general surgery procedures as well as gynecologic procedures. So the ureters arise, like I said, from the renal pelvis. They're going to travel under the gonadal arteries, over the common iliac arteries, and then under the uterine artery in females and the vas deferens in males. So there's a saying, water under the bridge. So this is in reference to the water is the ureter and it runs underneath the bridge, which is the uterine artery in females and the vas deferens in males. The blood supply to the ureter can be broken into three parts, the proximal portion, middle, and distal. So proximal, meaning closest to the kidney itself, is supplied by the renal arteries. The middle is supplied by the gonadal arteries, the aorta, the common and internal iliacs, and the distal portion will be supplied by the internal iliac artery and the superior vesicle arteries. There's three common points of obstruction of the ureter that are important clinically because kidney stones can get lodged in any of these places. So, the first was mentioned earlier the ureteropelvic junction, the second, the pelvic inlet, and the third, the ureterovesicle junction. So, this is where the ureter reaches the bladder. So, both ureters are going to enter into the bladder, and the urethra is going to originate from the lower aspect of the bladder. And if you connect these three points, it forms a triangle, um, and it's called the trigon. So, that's just a little tidbit of info. And then, another clinical tie in that becomes important that involves anatomy is the posterior urethral valves. So, this is going to be the most common cause of bladder outlet obstruction in male infants. So here you have a membrane remnant in the posterior urethra, and it blocks the outflow of urine. So here you'll have bilateral hydronephrosis. Really lock in on the term bilateral because that becomes important in distinguishing it from another pathology that we talk about later. So bilateral hydronephrosis, and you can also have a dilated and thick-walled bladder on ultrasound as it works hard because it's a muscle to try and push the urine out against these valves.
1: And then we can talk about the blood supply to the kidney as well so as far as arterial supply of blood to the kidney you have your renal arteries from that come directly off of the aorta they're going to be inferior to the origin of the superior mesenteric artery or the sma at the l1 l2 vertebral level that's pretty important the l1 l2 vertebral level for uh like a uh, clinical tie-in here that we'll get to in a minute as well so just try to remember that number Um, and then the renal artery it's going to break up into smaller arteries that provide blood to the kidneys so i could go over those really quickly so renal artery to segmental artery the interlobar artery afferent arterial the glomerulus the efferent arterial and then the vasorecta paratubular capillaries these are what basically surround the uh collecting or the uh uh, convoluted tubules and the lupa henley and things like that And provide blood supply there and then from from there you're going to have the venous outflow and so quickly getting into the venous outflow as well you have your right and left renal veins that go to the ivc the inferior vena cava the left renal vein is longer it's going to travel over the aorta all right so clinical correlation like i just talked about as far as uh number for the first clinical correlation is called nutcracker syndrome so that left renal vein that travels between the superior mesenteric artery and the aorta can become compressed and symptoms that you're going to experience with this you'll see abdominal or flank pain you'll have gross hematuria from a rupture of the thin-walled renal varicosities and then there's also another clinical correlation uh, the left kidney is taken during living, living donor transplantation because it's the, the renal vein is longer. So that's kind of a neat thing to, to know. I don't think it's very important, but uh, you know, good for trivia night. Yeah. Um,
0: and that makes sense intuitively if you think about it because if you can picture the aorta along the posterior wall, the IVC is going to sit to the right side of it. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that the left renal vein would need to be longer if... The IVC is on the right side of the body. So just don't overthink it. If you just can kind of picture the anatomy, it'll make sense.
1: Yep, that's a great point. And then uh, what can be really important? I'm pretty pretty sure I might have had a question about this on my step exam, but just knowing the difference in the gonadal, so the testicular and the ovarian veins on the right and left side, the right-sided gonadal veins are going to drain directly into the inferior vena cava. And like I said, they are going to ask you this question for sure. And then the left gonadal vein uh, is going to, uh, well, the left gonadal vein with the left suprarenal vein is going to drain to the, re- the renal vein itself. So uh, to make more sense into that, the gonadal vein on the right side is going to go directly to the inferior vena cava. The left one is going to go into the renal vein and then the renal vein into the inferior vena cava.
0: Definitely know that. That will come up. So now moving on to my least favorite topic, uh, embryology. So the only reason this becomes important again is failure of these processes lead to congenital abnormalities and conditions involving the kidneys that could be tested on the exam. So to start off with the embryology, so you have a pro So this is the initial part of the kidney. It's present until week four of gestation mm-hmm. and then it degenerates. So then you have the mesonephros. So this is going to be the interim kidney during your first trimester. So later, it will contribute to the male genitalia, but that's going to be more of a reproductive topic. So ignore the mesonephros for now. The most important part is going to be the metanephros. So this is the permanent structure that's going to persist. And you start to see this around the fifth week of gestation. So there's two components to the metanephros that's important. So you have the ureteric bud, also called the metanephric diverticulum. So the ureteric bud is going to give rise to the ureter, the pelvises, the calices, as well as the collecting ducts, and it's fully canalized by week 10. And then you have the metanephric mesenchyme, also known as the metanephric blastema. So this structure is going to interact with the ureteric bud. So if you can kind of picture, this is going to be weird, but picture the ureteric bud is like the stick of a popsicle, and then the metanephric mesenchyme kind of sits on top of it, like the actual popsicle part. Ooh, I, I, don't, like that. I don't know why, that's how I always I like thought that. of it. So the metanephric mesenchyme is going to interact with a ureteric bud. So what happens here is you then have differentiation and formation of structures from the metanephric mesenchyme, and that's going to be the glomerulus through the distal convoluted tubule. So a question that you'll get here is essentially where are the collecting ducts derived from? And it's going to be the ureteric bud. You might get where is the distal convoluted tubule derived from, the metanephric mesenchyme. So just remember the metanephric mesenchyme or metanephric blastema is going to give you all of the nephron, up until the distal convoluted tubule and then the ureteric bud collecting ducts
1: yeah and, and quickly, like the only part of the nephron that's not derived from the metanephric mesenchyme is going to be the collecting ducts so the collecting ducts like Ali saying are from the uteric bud and kind of how I remembered it was because this is an important topic they'll definitely ask you something about this but for some reason they love it but if we're talking small stuff in the kidney then you're thinking about the metanephric blastema. If we're talking big stuff, then it's the uteric bud. And that'll get you 90% of the questions right there.
0: And then another clinical tie-in here. So we've talked a lot about that ureito- I cannot say this word. ureteropelvic junction. So this is the last portion to canalize, which just means become hollow or open up, which is a common cause of prenatal hydronephrosis. It's actually the most common cause. And here you're going to have... Unilateral hydronephrosis, which remember back when we talked about posterior urethral valves, it was bilateral. If this fails to canalize, you're going to have unilateral hydronephrosis that you find on ultrasound. So, Ned, what is a popular syndrome that they like to ask about um, that has to do with kidneys in developing?
1: Well, Ali, I'm really glad you asked here because uh, I'm going to go with Potter syndrome. All right, so Potter syndrome, babies who can't pee in utero are gonna develop Potter syndrome, all right? And the cause of this can be autosomal recessive polycystic kidney disease. It can be an obstructive cause like the posterior urethral valves that uh, Allie and I talked about earlier, bilateral renal agenesis, chronic placental insufficiency. Essentially what happens here is that urine provides a swimming pool type of cushion for the developing fetus. If the fetus is unable to urinate or or uh you know create that cushion there you're going to get what's called oligohydramnios, and that's going to lead to compression of the fetus um, it's imagine that it just doesn't have that cushion its face is smushing down or whatever is smushing down on the um, uterus and it doesn't develop correctly it's going to lead to deformities like i just mentioned the deformities can be remembered using potter as a mnemonic all right so first letter here p pulmonary hypoplasia. So the chest is gonna be compressed. You can't aspirate amniotic fluid into the fetal lungs. Um, So that urine, the baby's essentially just like breathing in and swallowing that urine. And that's gonna be the the cause of death in this because their lungs aren't able to develop. The O is gonna be oligohydromniose. The first T is gonna be twisted face, like we talked about, that smushed face. Uh, The other T is gonna be twisted skin. I'm not going to lie. I don't really like remember what that means, essentially. It's just part of the mnemonic. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, just
0: facial abnormalities is what they're getting at.
1: Yeah. Um, the, e, the E is going to be extremity defects, and the R is going to be renal failure, which should be obvious.
0: This always makes me think, too, like if Harry Potter had this, he would come out looking like Dobby. <laughs> I don't know why that just—that's what it makes me think of. But moving on. So the next—I hope that helps all of
1: you remember this.
0: So the next pathology that can come up with the kidneys that's important anatomy-wise is going to be horseshoe kidney. So in horseshoe kidney, you have the inferior poles of the kidneys, so the lower portion that's going to fuse together. So this is important because in development, the kidneys actually ascend from the pelvis. So because of this fusion, the inferior pole that's connected is going to get stuck underneath the inferior mesenteric artery and it's going to remain lower in the abdomen. From a functional standpoint, there's not too much that changes. The kidneys are going to have normal function, so it's usually found kind of accidentally on imaging and things of that nature. But it's important to note with horseshoe kidney that you have a higher incidence in certain chromosomal aneuploidies. So for example, Turner syndrome. Remember that Turner syndrome is associated with horseshoe kidney. They love that. And also trisomy 13, 18, and 21, so Down syndrome, can have this as well. And then the um, we wanted to talk about this too, just because it's important for um, answering questions, but Ned's just going to go over some quick hits that have to do with urinalysis and microscopy.
1: Yep. So first thing we're going to talk about, they might give you a urinalysis that has you know, positive leukocyte esterase. That just means there's bacteria in the urine. Um, if they give you that it's nitrite positive, that means that there's E. coli specifically. There's a certain enzyme that basically converts, uh, I think it's nitrate, into nitrite. Yeah, um, I think that's just some you e.
0: gram negatives.
1: Yeah, it's like enterobacteria or whatever, yeah. species positive. Either way, E. coli, that's what they're going after. Um, so pH of the urine should be between 4.5 and 8. So the number to remember there is 8 because there are some infections like Proteus that can cause the urine to become more basic. So if it's a, they give you a urine that's above 8, then you kind of have your answer there usually. And then uh, heme. So they do like a uh, DIP test for blood that'll tell you if there's any blood in the urine. This usually means that there's blood, but it doesn't specify between hematuria, hemoglobinuria, or myoglobinuria. So just stay aware of that because it could mean that somebody has rhabdomyolysis instead, and what they're picking up is that positive myoglobinuria.
0: Yeah, so don't get tripped up on that. So when they ask you about rhabdo, they'll say that the heme test was positive for blood, the dip test. And then when you look further, you won't see any red blood cells Mm -hmm. themselves in the urine. So that's the key that they're getting at the rhabdomyolysis there.
1: Exactly. And then the last thing I'll go over here is casts. So there's four that are going to be important to remember um, in a fairly patho-pneumonic, but uh, muddy brown cast. This is going to be a- acute tubular necrosis. This means that there's just acute kidney damage. Usually it's from ischemia, so look for somebody that maybe was in shock or had like a hemorrhagic blood loss, things like that. Um, the next type are going to be fatty casts, and this could be because of nephrotic syndrome, that they're spilling protein. Um, that's usually what they're going after, but it could also be chronic kidney issues if you have like a chronic pyelonephritis, so just be aware of that as well. And then uh, white blood cell casts, this usually means acute interstitial nephritis. And this is usually caused by drugs, uh, could all, the acute interstitial nephritis is. Um, it could also mean that they have acute pyelonephritis as well. And then lastly, uh, if you have red blood cell casts, then this is indicated, indicative of glomerulonephritis.
0: So now we're going to do the see this, think this. So which kidney sits lower? The right one. What level do the kidneys sit?
1: Roughly T11 to L3.
0: Where does the ureter run in relation to the common iliac arteries? Right over it. Where does the ureter run in relation to the uterine artery in females?
1: Under, and that's that water under the bridge uh, that we were talking about earlier, under the vas deferens in
0: males. What's the most common cause of bladder outlet obstruction in male infants with bilateral hydronephrosis?
1: That's that posterior urethral valve
0: and the most common cause of prenatal hydronephrosis that is unilateral.
1: Uritopelvic junction fails to canalize.
0: So you have a short female with a bicuspid aortic valve, coarctation of the aorta, amenorrhea. Which renal abnormality would you expect here?
1: I would expect horseshoe kidney in a female with Turner syndrome.
0: So you have oligohydramnios, limb deformities, low set ears, a flattened nose, and pulmonary hypoplasia.
1: Potter sequence, and pulmonary hypoplasia is the most important part of that.
0: What embryologic structure gives rise to the collecting ducts?
1: The uteric bud.
0: What embryologic structure gives rise to the rest of the nephron minus the collecting ducts?
1: The metanephric blastema.
0: If the ureteric bud fails to develop and does not induce differentiation of the metanephric mesenchyme, what do you get?
1: Unilateral renal agenesis.
0: What two veins drain into the left renal vein?
1: The left gonadal vein and the left suprarenal vein.
0: What's the most common location for kidney stones to become lodged?
1: The uteropelvic junction.
0: So that is it for the renal system and the kidneys, and we will see you guys next time.
1: Yep, I think we're doing GI?
0: Yeah, I think we'll go with GI next GI. time, so stay All tuned.
1: Right.